From claims of healings and visions to the world's most inexplicable events, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the truth is always worth the hunt. EWTN Radio presents The Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. Happy Lent, everyone, or uh, I hope your Lent is off to a good start, I should say, maybe more appropriately, as we reflect on this time heading into Easter, and we all try to uh, use this opportunity, whether it's uh, giving up sweets or otherwise, uh, to get ourselves in, in the right place. Ahead for you today, we'll have some various uh, Lenten uh, topics coming up on this program. But for today's show, we'll be still focused on a couple of things that we like to talk about. Marian apparitions is one. Uh, people know me from my work on MiracleHunter.com, where I've got cataloged as many as 2,500 Marian apparitions throughout history. And one of my all-time favorite books, and I feel like I own every book, in English, uh, in, at least in modern times, uh, written about Marian apparitions. And one, is, one of my all-time favorites is a, a book from Our Sunday Visitor. It's a classic book by Catherine O'Dell. It's called Those Who Saw Her. And uh, just uh, news came out that just released is the fourth edition of this book. So congrats to Catherine O'Dell on that uh, accomplishment. We'll be excited to talk to her later in the show. Uh, we've talked to her over the years about this uh, incredible book that details uh, some of the great visionaries and visions throughout Catholic history. Later in the program, we'll be talking about Venerable Nelson Baker. Uh, he was one of the uh, episodes of They Might Be Saints. He's someone on the path to sainthood who lived an incredible life, and we'll be uh, talking to some members of his canonization cause uh, later in the program to talk about uh, updates, find out when he might be moving along to blessed and then to saint. And uh, later in the show, I will be talking about uh, They Might Be Saints, which is a segment on the show. We do a Might Be Saint of the Day and Sainthood News, etc. Uh, but for people who want to check out the program, they might be saints on EWTN. This week, we'll be featuring an episode on Montse Grasses. So I examine the saintly life of Montse Grasses. She was a cheerful 17-year-old who faced cancer with extraordinary faith and joy, and she could be the first woman of Opus Dei to be declared a saint. And so that'll be coming up uh, next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, they Might Be Saints. You can also pick up the book, They Might Be Saints, which is available at EWTNRC.com. And check out uh, Explore with the Miracle Hunter. One of the more interesting episodes, I think, is uh, when we go to Tre Fontana in Italy. I investigate a miraculous encounter at the site where St. Paul was martyred, the Virgin of Red Revelation's appearance to Bruno Cornacciola, a rabid anti-Catholic, change both the man and the church itself. So uh, check that one out. Explore with the Miracle Hunter. That's every Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And this Saturday, we'll be, uh, we'll be exploring Trey Fontana. Later in the show, we're going to be looking at the 365 Days with Mary project. For today, we've got Our Lady of Exile from Florianopolis in Brazil in the year 1673. And the might-be saint of the day is Blessed Elisabetta Sana from uh, Italy, who lived from the year 1788 to 1857. And the question of the week. In 2016, Pope Francis said to a crowd that Mother Angelica is in heaven. Can this be considered an act of equivalent canonization? I'll do my best to answer that one later in the show. And the miracle of the day. This is a new segment we're doing for 2024. Uh, for today's date, uh, February 17th, we'll be reflecting on the apparition that occurred in San Nicolas, Argentina in the year 1989. The miracle news for today isn't quite a miracle at all, but it's, it's pretty impressive. It uh, relates to a uh, Guinness Book of World Records accomplishment uh, related to the Virgin Mary. So the story goes that in the year 2023, uh, there was this mantle of flowers that weighed an estimated uh, 8,800 pounds and covered an area of 800 square meters. And uh, in the mantle of 2024 will be even larger. And we're talking, of course, about the mantle of the Virgin Mary. And this is in Valencia. So this artisan guild of florists of the Valencian community has set its sight on a new Guinness Book of World Records with an offering to the Virgin de los Desamparados, which is tr traditionally made after the Fales Festival in Valencia. And it, as read in Valencia Plaza, the 
president of the guild, Juan Uresma. He believed that the metal is already the largest in the world and doubts that it can be surpassed. And he has already contacted the Council of Valencia and the Justa uh, Central Falera for support in his quest to have this uh, cape or mantle officially recognized by the Guinness World Records. And the cape is made from carnations of the bouquets carried by the participants in the offering to the Virgin. In 2023, the mantle weighed uh, 4,000 kilograms and covered this huge area. And according to uh, Uresma, uh, the 2024 mantle will be even larger. And the quote is, we deserve it because there is no floral mantle like it in other in the world, Uresma said in a statement to the European press. And the floral mantle of the Virgin of the Forsaken, the Vir- Virgin de los Desamparados, is a symbol of our city and our culture, and we want to share it with the world. And so... Uh, if the mantle is officially recognized by the Guinness World Records, it will be the latest in a series of successful attempts by Valencia Forest to achieve international recognition. So uh, pretty amazing, uh, pretty amazing accomplishment uh, to see if they get the Guinness uh, World Record for this largest uh, display of flowers. Let's take a look at Catholic Pope Trivia. We do this every week where we ask a trivia question and give out a prize to an emailer that writes in with the correct answer. Last week, we asked a question about Our Lady of Lourdes, and we asked how many decades were on the rosary held by the Virgin Mary in the apparitions at Lourdes, and the answer was six. And uh, writing in, it was the winner, Ian Edwards, writing in with that answer. And I think uh, there's been uh, the idea that the sixth decade is uh, for the holy souls in purgatory, but uh, somewhat of a different rosary than uh, we normally pray. So thanks so much, Ian, for writing in, and you are the winner of the prize, The Faces of Mary. And the question for this week, uh, we're talking today on today's program about Venerable Nelson Baker, uh, an absolutely incredible uh, American on the path to sainthood. Uh, with one miracle, he'll be a blessed, a second miracle, he'll be a saint. And he lived an incredible life, including one where he built a basilica in old age. And uh, he died at the age of 94. And so the question is, who was the oldest American saint at the time of their death? Question again, who was the oldest American saint at the time of their death? If you think you know that question, want to win the prize, the image of the faces of Mary, send me an email to questions at miraclehunter.com. And uh, we'll see who has the, the, the right answer in the fastest, shortest time. And uh, send me an email, and uh, we'll see. Uh, the winners will be posted on the show page on MiracleHunter.com. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking with author Catherine O'Dell about the new release of her book, Those Who Saw Her, Apparitions of Mary. Stay with us for that. Now, back to The Miracle Hunter. On EWTN, here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. People know me from my website, miraclehunter.com, and on my website, uh, I got started at least cataloging Marian apparitions. And uh, on there, you'll find as many as 2,500 claims of apparitions and much fewer uh, that have been approved by the church. And uh, I've uh, studied this over the years, and I've uh, maybe I've, I own every every book that's ever been written in English, at least in, in the last uh, several decades, related to Marian apparitions. And one of my all-time favorite books that I've got is called "Those Who Saw Her: uh, Apparitions of Mary," and that's written by author Catherine O'Dell with our Sunday Visitor. And uh, this is what I consider to be one of the classic books on Marian apparitions. And uh, the last time an edition came out was 2010. And now for 2024, we have a brand new edition, the fourth edition of this book. Uh, it's been expanded and revised. So I'm excited to welcome Catherine O'Dell back to the show. Welcome to the show today, Catherine. Well, thank you so much for the welcome. I appreciate uh, being here and appreciate the opportunity to talk about the newest edition of the book. Well, it's great to talk with you again. I know we've talked over the years about your book and about Marian apparitions and um, you, you've got a new edition of the book. It's expanded and revised. And the main concept behind the book is you present, present some of the very uh, highly approved and uh, church-recognized uh, visions of Mary uh, throughout uh, Christian history. And, uh, of course, uh, people are familiar with some of these big names, Fatima, Lourdes, and Guadalupe, but you also present some of the ones that people may not have heard of uh, quite, quite as well. 
And uh, one of the things uh, in this book, uh, we have an edition of Our Lady of Good Help, which is which are those 1859 apparitions approved by Bishop David L. Ricken in the Diocese of Green Bay uh, in on December 8th, 2010. So this is a very uh, modern Marian apparition approval. Uh, this went back some, uh, some centuries, uh, but uh, of course, this is a big deal that it happened here in the United States. Talk a little bit about some of the updates to the book and especially Our Lady of Good Help. Okay, well, um, let me start, first of all, with the cover, which um, I was particularly pleased with and thought really captured one of the main points of the book, which is that Mary, in her appearances and, and, and her visits, has come to really children all around the world. In, in, it's, it's not accurate to assume that Marian apparitions have been all European. In fact, Mary has come to uh, Asia, to South America, to Africa, as well as now to North America at the apparitions that you referred to at Champion, Wisconsin. So when the cover of the uh, uh, book was just sent to me as, you know, to the author to let me see what they had in mind. I was just very delighted because it now has, and uh, your listeners and people looking for the book will discover that it has six images of different apparitions of Mary around the world, including Guadalupe, including uh, Cabejo in Africa, and including Akita in Japan, and of course several um, European apparitions too. But the fact that it it explored this and put this, placed this right on the cover, I think was a very important message of the book, which is that Mary has no favorites, and Mary has come and wants to reach out to all, all of her children around the world in every ethnic group, in every nation, every culture. So that was Absolutely. an important thing, I thought, that was really great about this edition of the book. Absolutely. And when we when we compare these uh, various visions of Mary, uh, the name of the book is Those Who Saw Her. We're talking about uh, the visionaries, perhaps, in these uh, places around the world. Uh, you might be referring to Akita in Japan with uh, Sister Agnes Sasagawa, or right. in Kabeho, Rwanda, the, the school children there uh, who saw her. They're in Africa, or uh, in the United States, we have... Uh, uh, the visionary from Belgium, but who lived in the United States, um, Adele Bryce, uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, St. Juan Diego in, in Mexico, and Catherine Labore, and, and uh, Bernadette Subaru, and the children of Fatima. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do, you, do you see uh, similarities, or are there, are there, are there, uh, are there points of, of, of correspondence between uh, when you look at those who saw her, the people who saw Mary? Well, I think one of the things that people notice and they might initially wonder about and question is, um, how is it or why did Mary often choose children or not always children, but sometimes simple or less educated people to receive these apparitions, to receive these messages that she wanted to share with the wider community and the wider uh, group of believers at that particular time and at that place. And that is a good question because... Uh, in, in some cases, for instance, at Fatima, those children were nine and uh, seven and nine and ten years old. Very little children, very young children. So, in a sense, why share these messages, these important messages with children who are so young and so inexperienced? And in some cases, in other apparitions, it, it was adults, but people that wouldn't have had a lot of clout or a lot of, uh, you know, traction, maybe, in that particular society or culture. Um, but I think the reason for this is, possibly, is that children couldn't be accused of having anything to gain by sharing these messages that they say and they uh, they tell people that they've received from um, Our Lady, from the Mother of God. And so they would have no way of gaining power or influence or wealth by claiming to see these visions. So I suspect that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, these visions have have often been shared with, with uh, people who have no power, no vested interest, etc. But, yeah, there is a, a lot of variety uh, beyond that, really, in, in the kinds of uh, people, kinds of ages. Some of them actually, you know, as I said, ha as I've mentioned, have themselves. But um, it's, it's Mary Chooses. And, and, and 
Mary choosing people who can share her message, I think, in a very honest, um, you know, straightforward way. Absolutely. We're talking today with Catherine O'Dell, author of Those Who Saw Her, Apparitions of Mary Revised and Expanded, the fourth edition now from our Sunday Visitor. And when we compare, we're comparing visionaries from around the world, but what about if we compare the way that uh, people saw Mary around the world? Of course, we're talking about some sort of uh, diversity in these apparitions of North America with Our Lady of uh, Champion, as she's known now, or in South America, uh, various places all over Europe, uh, in Cabejo in Rwanda, or Akita in Japan, or anywhere around the world. Uh, Mary comes to the people in the way that they can best be received. What do you make of uh, the different appearances of Mary, since Mary was an actual person living on earth, Mary of Nazareth? What do we make of her looking and speaking differently in different places? Well, right. She she appears in a way that people are comfortable with her and can hear her message and can see her message in a sense. Because, um, as you mentioned, at Guadalupe, of course, back in 1531, she appears as a native, as a native maiden. And Juan Diego, the visionary, the only visionary of that apparition, uh, immediately recognizes her as a beautiful young maiden who speaks to him in his native language, Nahuatl. And so, you know, but in other in other uh, settings and in other centuries and in, and in uh, nations, she appears so that particular visionary is comfortable with her and can communicate with her. So, in, in the Rue de Bach um, apparition. Uh, in the 18th century, um, Catherine Labore, this is in France, of course, in Paris, near Paris, um, sees uh, this virgin appearing in the chapel, in the convent chapel. And the, uh, this is one of my actually favorite uh, uh, apparitions, really, the story of it anyway. Um, Catherine had lost her own mother at the age of nine or ten. It was devastated. She was the youngest of about eight or nine children. Uh, the second youngest, and she was devastated by the loss of her mother at that age. And about a month after her mother died, she was discovered by a servant in the house on the top of a dresser that had been in her parents' bedroom, um, looking at a large statue of Mary, saying, well, now you will have to be my mother. And so that loss of her mother really spoke to her throughout her whole life. So this apparition was particularly dear in a very personal way, too. And when she saw the, the Virgin appearing in, the, uh, in this chapel in the middle of the night, um, she went up to her, and the Virgin sat down in the bishop's chair. And according to the reports, Catherine knelt down beside the uh, Our Lady and put her hands on Our Lady's knees. And she said later, this was the happiest moment of my life. So... She had her mother back in a certain sense, but those apparitions um, were also characterized by Our Lady's appeal to Catherine to have a medal struck, which she wanted to use to, to catechize. And the medal was to have the message, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us to have recourse to thee. So um, over a period of years, Catherine was able to promote the production of this medal was eventually called a miraculous medal because it was connected with so many healing cures um, at that particular time, and I'm sure throughout its history. So that was another way of appearing, in a sense, was through a medal. Um, in, in two different um, apparitions in the 19th century, at pont Main in 1871 and in Knock in Ireland in 1879, there were wordless apparitions. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That was going to be my next question. There's, yeah. you know, sometimes Mary speaks uh, uh, loquaciously for 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 many hours, perhaps at Cabejo, and then at other times at Knock and uh, and other places, Pont Main, or yeah. we we talk about in in Egypt uh, those those uh, Coptic apparitions, Zaitun, where she appears without saying anything. What do we make of uh, the different uh, delivery of messages of Mary at different places? Well. I- those, yeah, as you as you point out, they're wordless, and it was very interesting because the historical background for Point Main was that France, this was in France, um, was very close to the um, to the war front with uh, with the Prussian army, and Prussian army was uh, very close to attacking uh, this particular part of the country, 
And the people knew that, and they had sent some of their sons and some of the young men from their village to fight against the Prussians. And so it was a very imminent sort of thing. So, I mean, there was underlying terror and fear that they would be attacked, that um, they would lose the war, that Prussia would, would, would defeat France. So this particular wordless apparition, which ended up having a message shared, but literally with a banner unfurling under the apparition, under the vision of Mary, which said, God will hear you in a little while, which isn't terribly specific, but what it meant to the hearts of the people who were terrified of war and destruction facing them imminently was that, okay, we'll be protected. And then the second part of the message was, my son allows himself to be touched. It was an unspoken message, but it gave them comfort, and they immediately recognized and were encouraged by that. And in fact, the Prussian army, for some reason, um, began to reverse itself and to uh, head away from this village and, and out of France. But at Knock, in the same way, there was a wordless apparition of Mary, St. Joseph, and St. John the Evangelist, which apparently just about everybody in the village uh, saw. So, in a sense, all those people were also visionaries. But there was no particular uh, spoken or even in this case, written message. But it was a comfort for them because Irish people uh, had suffered so much in that century because of the potato famine and having so many of their family members and their friends because of the incredible poverty emigrate to like the United States, to this country. Um, and also so many people dying of starvation and malnutrition there. So it was a heartbreak time for that particular country. And this particular apparition, uh, wordless apparition, gave them comfort. Well, that's a message, but it's not a spoken message. We're talking today with Catherine O'Dell about the update to her book, Those Who Saw Her, from Our Sunday Visitor. And uh, when we look at Marian apparitions throughout history, and they're so well uh, presented in your book, Those Who Saw Her, people will get to know these very famous occasions of uh, church-recognized Marian apparitions throughout history. And uh, what do you, if you had to sort of step back and try to, I, I get this question a lot, and, and I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about it. Um, why does Mary come? What's the why of Marian apparitions? We all find them to be these spectacular moments. They're inspirational. Uh, I think um, people really uh, get excited to hear that the Mother of God has walked amongst us at these rare moments throughout history, or at least the the ones that have been recognized by the Catholic Church, uh, what is the reason that Mary comes to us? Well, that's a very good question, and I think that there's several kinds of ways to answer that, but I think, as we've just discussed, in those apparitions at Knock and, and in France in the late 19th century, those were messages of consolation and support protection for people that were really suffering. People of faith, but people who are, had just really suffered from a, a lot of different heartaches, starvation in the case of Irish, and, and, and the emigration, the loss of their family members. But other apparition themes seem to be, over uh, many, many centuries, uh, an appeal, uh, a reminder uh, for the need uh, for repentance, for intercessory prayer, for sacrifice, for a return to the sacraments, particularly to the Eucharist and to reconciliation, to increased recitation and devotion to the rosary, and the building of shrines and churches to help people remember this. In a certain way, you could say that it's a bit like in our culture today, we have our billboards along our roads and highways. They seem to be bigger and fancier than they ever were before. Um, and they are messages to remind people about something they probably already know about. But, yeah, it, 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 you can't avoid seeing it, and, and it reminds you of something. Um, I, I think of apparitions in a certain sense as reminders. And people, you know, in life, they do need reminders. And so many of the apparitions have been dramatic and beautiful and the healing uh, and 
especially places like Lourdes and also in Latin America, um, there the the healings and the, the 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 ability and the connection with a lot of healings and, and miraculous uh, cures with those particular apparitions have also kind of uh, drawn attention to the message and and they've been unavoidable kind of billboards for uh, the message that Mary is trying to share with us, which is we need to return and pay more attention to the most important things in life, prayer, devotion, and worship. Absolutely. Well, we've been so grateful today to be joined by Catherine O'Dell, author of Those Who Saw Her, a classic book about Marian apparitions, now out in its fourth edition for our Sunday visitor. Congratulations on that, Catherine, for the fourth edition. And uh, for people who want to pick up that book um, or find out more about you and your work, what's the best place that people can go? Well, as you mentioned, uh, Michael, the book is available through uh, the publisher, Our Study Visitor. Wonderful. Well, we're so grateful to you, Catherine O'Dell, author of Those Who Saw Her, Apparitions of Mary, for joining us on today's program. Thank you, Michael. God bless. That was Catherine O'Dell, author of Those Who Saw Her, fascinating conversation about Marian apparitions with a true expert. And uh, as we mentioned, the revised and expanded edition of her book, the fourth edition from our Sunday visitor, is out. Those Who Saw Her, uh, check that one out. Uh, it's one of my all-time favorites. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be answering the question of the week. In 2016, did Pope Francis say to a crowd that Mother Angelica is in heaven? Is that a form of canonization? Stay with us for that answer. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. We love getting your questions on this show. People write in with questions from around the world about miracles happening in today's world and those that have happened centuries ago. And I love uh, giving talks around the country. Every year I speak to Catholic parishes, to Catholic events, uh, different shrines. And I always give a talk. It's about 45 minutes. And at the end of the talk, I open it up to questions. And I love to see what people are thinking about. Uh, people have lots of questions about miracles. And if you want to invite me to speak at your parish or group, you can send me an email through my website to click on uh, the contact tab on miraclehunter.com. I've been speaking a lot these days about Eucharistic miracles because of the uh, Eucharistic revival that's been going on in our Catholic Church in this year. So you can get a hold of me that way. But I love getting these questions that are emailed to me as well. And I got a really good one this past week, kind of an interesting one for uh, EWTN uh, viewers and listeners. The question was, uh, Dear Miracle Hunter, in 2016, Pope Francis said to a crowd that Mother Angelica, quote, is in heaven. Can this be an act of equipollent canonization? Thank you, Devin. Thanks, Devin, for your question. And uh, you might wonder what equipollent canonization is. And it turns out that the Pope, being the Pope, has the ability uh, to uh, go ahead and canonize somebody even when they don't have all their miracles in place. So a uh, famous example, St. Peter uh, Faber is one. Uh, St. Margaret of Castello was one from this past year who was elevated due to uh, equipollent or equivalent canonization. And we also have uh, cases like in the United States, Blessed Unipro Sarah. When the Pope visited the United States, there weren't two miracles that had been recognized. There were only one, but the Pope anyway made him Saint Unipro Sarah. So he's the Pope. He can do whatever he wants. And so uh, in this case, uh, we have a question of when he was speaking off the cuff, as sometimes he uh, tends to do, he said to a crowd that Mother Angelica is in heaven. So can we consider this a case of where the Pope is elevating somebody to sainthood? Um, no, uh, this is just a comment from the Pope. Of course, when they uh, go forward with canonization causes, it has to run through the dicastery for the causes of saints and all the research has to be done and a formal decree must be promulgated uh, in conjunction with that dicastery uh, from the Pope. So, uh, so no, just an off-the-cuff statement from the Pope doesn't make Mother Angelica a saint. Uh, everyone here at EWTN uh, believes that she is a saint, of course, uh, but she hasn't yet formally been recognized by the church and her canonization cause is open, I believe. 
but she hasn't yet moved along the path. So something to pray for, uh, Mother Angelica's canonization. But uh, Pope Francis will need to do it in a more formal way uh, if, in fact, they want to do an equipollent or equivalent canonization. So thanks, Devin, for your question. And if you have a question for the Miracle Hunter, you can send me an email to questions at miraclehunter.com, and maybe I'll be answering your question on the air next week. Let's take a look at the 365 Days with Mary project. We do this every week where we look at the Marian devotion of the day. We all know Fatima, May 13th, or Lourdes, February 11th, or Guadalupe, December 12th. But believe it or not, there's a different Marian devotion from somewhere around the world that lines up exactly to the day's date. And we're talking about uh, feast days or uh, days of miracles or... uh, basilicas being built and dedicated on a certain day, there's a different way that Mary's honored on every day of the calendar year somewhere around the world. And so for today's day, we've got Our Lady of Exile from Florianopolis in Brazil in the year 1673. And the story goes that explorer Francisco Dias Velo of Sao Paulo founded the town of Nossa Senhora do Desterro, uh, on Santa Carina Island in southern Brazil in February 17, 1673, according to local accounts. And amongst the occupants of the area were his family, two Jesuits, and a few other Brazilians, and hundreds of Indian workers. Florianopolis, the present-day city, grew from the founding settlement. Its chapel transformed into the cathedral named for the city's patron, Our Lady of Exile. And on this date, she is still venerated annually there. And a sculpture in the cathedral depicting the Holy Family on their way to Egypt was carved of lindenwood by the Demetz workshop in the Italian Tyrol. And the statue was blessed on May 30th, 1902. And that is Our Lady of Exile from Florianopolis in Brazil in 1673. For more information on this fascinating devotion, or under any of the hundreds of other Marian devotions throughout the world, you can go to 365dayswithmary.com. You can pick up the book. You can download the free app on the Apple App Store. Or you can join the Facebook page and and any of the other 10,000 followers of 365 Days with Mary. Let's take a look at our new segment, Miracle of the Day. This is something we've started in 2024, where we look at a miracle that happened somewhere in the world that that lines up exactly to the day's date. And so uh, for today's date, February 17th, we've got a miracle from February 17th in 1989. And this connects with Our Lady of the Rosary in San Nicolas, Argentina. And the story is on September 25th, 1983, Gladys Moda de Quiroga had a vision of the Virgin Mary when she was praying the rosary at her home in San Nicolas, which is two hours north of Buenos Aires. I've, I was just there uh, myself last year. And it was the beginning of a long series of apparitions that were claimed by this devout housewife, which included over 1,800 messages in a sanctuary, which uh, is still under construction. It's a very basic one, uh, to my eye anyway was built in response to the devotional revival and international interest there, and many miracles, including the cure of a boy's brain tumor, were recorded. In uh, 1983, the seer and her confessor discovered a statue in the cathedral storage matching the Virgin's appearance, and it received a papal blessing. It was sent to the sanctuary and built at the Virgin's request on the banks of Paraná, which became a pilgrimage destination renowned for miracles. And the connection to today, February 17th, is that one of those many messages occurred on that day, February 17th, 1989. And the quote from that message was, now the world must know that the mother of Christ will overcome Satan because by her side will be her son's humble ones. And so that was the quote from today, February 17th in the year 1989. And that's today's miracle of the day. Let's take a look at They Might Be Saints. We talk about this every week, uh, miracles happening all around the world, and those things relate to sainthood causes. And we have Pope Francis canonizing Argentina's first female saint, Mama Antula, and Pope Francis canonized Argentina's first female saint, Maria Antonia of St. Joseph, affectionately known as the Pope's, uh, as in the Pope's country as Mama Antula, in a mass at St. Peter's on Sunday. And Argentine's president, Javier Millet, he sat in the front row to the Pope's right during this canonization on February 11th and embraced the Pope at the end of the Mass. And uh, for people who want to know, Mama Antula, who lived from 1730 to 1799, was a consecrated laywoman 
who promoted Ignatian spirituality and founded the Buenos Aires House for Spiritual Exercises at the time of widespread hostility to the Jesuit order. And the Pope praised this saint as a model of apostolic fervor and boldness for traveling thousands of miles on foot through deserts and dangerous roads to bring people to God. And so that is the new saint of Argentina, uh, the first female saint there, Saint Mama Antula. And the might-be saint of the day for today is Blessed Elizabeth, Elisabetta Sanna, who lived from 1788 to 1857 in Italy. She was born on April 23, 1788 in Codro in, in Sassari in Italy. She was a married laywoman in the Diocese of Rome and Sassari in Italy, and she was a widow. And she was a member of the Secular Franciscan Order and of the Union of the Catholic Apostolate. She died on February 17, 1857 in Rome of natural causes, declared venerable in 2014 by Pope Francis by a decree of heroic virtues, and also beatified by Pope Francis two years later on September 17th. And her beatification was celebrated at the Basilica of Santissima Trinita de Sarcasia in Italy, presided by Cardinal Angelo Amato. With one more miracle, a blessed Elisabetta Sana will be declared a saint. And for those people who want to watch They Might Be Saints, check out Monse Grasses this Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. I'll be examining the saintly life of Monse Grasses, the cheerful 17-year-old who faced cancer with extraordinary faith and joy. She could be the first woman of Opus Dei to be declared a saint. Check that one out and theymightbesaints.com for more information. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking with Monsignor David LaPuma about... Venerable Nelson Baker, who is on the path to sainthood from Buffalo. Stay with us for that. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. People who tune into this show know that I love talking about saints and maybe more specifically future saints and maybe even more specifically future American saints. And I do this program called They Might Be Saints on EWTN. And there's a book by the same name. And uh, there's a chapter and an episode dedicated to Venerable Nelson Baker. And uh, he is one of the more incredible. Uh, there are all these people on the path to sainthood, these people who will be saints today. They're all amazing people, of course, uh, by virtue of where they are and what they and how they live their lives and uh, are in heaven with God. But uh, Venerable Nelson Baker lived a life that uh, is worth noting, to, to be sure, an absolutely incredible one. And we're so excited uh, to uh, be following up and talking again to Father David Lapuma, the OLV National Shrine uh, and Basilica Rector. And we'll also be joined by David Kirsten, the Chief Executive Officer of OLV Charities. Welcome to the program today, Father David and David Kirsten. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having us on. We're honored. Yeah, it's great to to talk with you again, and uh, I, I still I still think back to the the filming of the episode that we did there in Buffalo at that uh, OLV National Shrine and Basilica, uh, one of my all time favorite episodes that we did, and the life of Father Baker and his legacy is impressive. It's it's something that uh, yeah, many many of the the saints who are being considered or the people who will be saints someday, uh, perhaps they didn't have these uh, lives of accomplishment or renown. But Father Baker uh, has a very different legacy. Talk to us a little bit about who was the man and uh, how his legacy lives on today. Certainly. Well, with this Friday, we'll be celebrating his birthday. He was born February 16, 1842, um, downtown Buffalo. Uh, he was raised uh, first by his uh, German Lutheran father. Uh, by the age of nine, he asked to be converted to become a Catholic and join his Irish Catholic mother. And obviously, she was very pleased that at a young age, he, he sought that out. Uh, he would go on, though, to eventually be ordained um, in March 19th of 1876, and he would serve as a priest for 60 years before he passed away uh, on July 29th, 1936. And almost all of that priestly ministry was done here, which was originally called Limestone Hill, uh, where there was a small church, St. Patrick. Uh, there was a small protectory and a small orphanage. But when Father Baker would eventually take over the institutions uh, and the parish, it would, out of that would grow what would eventually become uh, Our Lady of Victory National Shrine and Basilica, and then a series, and I mean a series of outreach and ministry to orphans, to unwed mothers, 
to troubled boys who need a direction in their lives, to a working home for boys, a working home for girls, a uh, protectory where they were safe, where they learned all kinds of trades and would go on to be very um, effective people in society. And all because Father Baker believed in the goodness of every person and that every person had the ability to change for the better once they were given the opportunity. So, and from, and from, what I can, from what I can tell, it seems that at some point, uh, Father Nelson Baker was perhaps the most famous and influential person in all of Buffalo. Would you agree with that? He was named the, the most uh, influential person of the 20th century, and that was quite an honor. They, they call, and when we refer to Lackawanna now, we, they refer to it as the city of charity and the uh, home of Father Baker. So there's actually signage all over the place um, because his legacy uh, did not die in 1936, but is going strong to this very day where we are taking care of over 12,000 children, family, and youth every day here uh, in this city of charity, doing exactly what Father Baker did, meeting the signs of the times, meeting the challenges of the times, and really doing our very best to help change lives for the better. Uh, Father Baker did all of this because of a pilgrimage that he took back in 1874 as a seminarian, which we are going to reenact uh, on April 30th of this year through May 9th. We're going to travel to Paris, France, where he did, along with the pilgrimage. We're going to stop there and visit Notre Dame de Victoire, Our Lady of Victory, the church that inspired him to dedicate his life to the um, patronage of Our Lady of Victory, and then to go on to Lourdes and to Rome, uh, where he experienced the splendor of the Church Universal and the beauty of the magnificent St. Peter's Basilica. And that really is what uh, formed him in his priesthood, because he said someday, after all that he had done in terms of taking care of children and families and youth and all the work that he did, Back in 1921, he finally was able to make that reality by building uh, this shrine, this basilica, when he laid the cornerstone in 1921 and celebrated the first Mass of Christmas in 1925, and then it was consecrated in May of 1926. And that's really this opportunity for us now. We appreciate you uh, giving us more attention to Father Baker because we really want people to know today, um, shine a light on the dome, shine a light on his life and his legacy and all that continues to this very day. Uh, when he was buried in 1936, they already believed he was a saint then. They uh, moved his, took his bodily fluids and put them in a separate sarcophagus. Um, and when he was brought out of the cemetery in 1999 at the um, encouragement of the cause of the saints, they said, bring him closer to the people so they have access to the tomb. So we brought his, his remains, his body, into the basilica. He's entombed here by the shrine of Our Lady of Lourdes, so that every day people can come in and pray for intercession through Father Baker. As you know, he's uh, at the second stage of the canonization process. He was named uh, Servant of God in 1987, and then Pope uh, Benedict XVI named him the Venerable in 2011. And now we are hoping and praying, and this is what we need. We need two intercessory miracles, one for beatification, one for canonization. And yeah, the let's more talk, we let's talk a little bit out. about that. How's the yeah. how's the hunt for miracles going? I know in order for him to be elevated, as you mentioned, from venerable to blessed, and then blessed to saint, he needs two miracles. And so the search is on. Uh, and I know there have been many cases of intercessions uh, that have been attributed to him. How's the search for miracles going at this point? Well, we're working for it. We have a file of, of people that have sent in uh, miracles of testimony that uh, we just have to find the right one to put in front of the congregation. As you know, there's a board of, of medical doctors um, in Rome uh, that will review those cases, and then eventually, if they pass it on, it goes to the board of bishops and theologians. Uh, right now, we are in the process of looking at um, that file and hopefully finding something that we can take to Rome and, and get that process moving. But that's our hope and prayer right now, is, especially as we're in the middle of the centennial celebration, um, to get that back in front of them. There was a pause uh, because of COVID and travel, but now that the borders are open, obviously, and uh, we have the ability, uh, we do want to get over in front of our uh, postulator in Rome and the cause of the saints to see what we can do to really move this forward. Wonderful. We've been talking today with uh, with two people from the canonization cause of Father Nelson Baker, and of course, Our Lady of Victory there in uh, the Buffalo area, one of the most uh, incredible uh, shrines and basilicas you'll ever see. We were so grateful to be able to film there. We've been talking today with Father David LaPuma, 
And uh, we will be joined, we're joined also by David Kirsten, the, the Chief Executive Officer of OLV Charities. Um, David Kirsten, I'll turn to you now. Um, I think that uh, that basilica that I mentioned is absolutely amazing, uh, but I'm I'm quite sure that throughout the years, this uh, this basilica requires some work to to keep it up, to restore it, to make it so beautiful uh, for visitors uh, for now and in the future to to enjoy it and to make use of it. Talk a little bit about uh, some of the the efforts that are being done uh, with with this basilica. Sure, Michael. Well, like so many grand and beautiful houses of worship all across the globe, they're often sometimes seen as a, a never-ending construction site. Um, but our, our beautiful basilica here was was built back in 19, started in 1921, completed in 1926. Um, so in a very short period of time, Father Baker was able to complete this incredible monument uh, to his uh, patroness, Our Lady of Victory, um, so just in a short five years, it was built. Um, as we know, in Europe, uh, there were beautiful buildings that took uh, literally hundreds of years. But here in western New York, um, sometimes our, our weather is not that favorable. So uh, the conditions of western New York have, have certainly uh, taken a, a bit of a toll on our building. It's been, it's been cared for very carefully. But this 100-year milestone has provided us with an opportunity to kind of dedicate um, the energies and the talent uh, and the skills of contractors and architects to to really uh, step back and say, what do we need to do to make sure that this beautiful house of worship is available for the next hundred years? So we've had a, a team of people working very hard over the last three years plus um, doing a, a complete assessment of this beautiful building, making sure that it's going to be secure from roof to, to masonry to drainage, and then working our way in and, and making sure that we're uh, tidying up and upgrading a number of features interiorly, including uh, our pews and our marble floors, our lighting, those th things that we've been uh, concentrating on. Um, we, we've had a number of uh, really heartening affirmations from the community in terms of fundraising that's connected with us. Uh, we were awarded um, uh, a grant for the National Fund for Sacred Places, which really helped catalyze our fundraising efforts. Um, and now we're about to shift into sort of a new phase with our work uh, where we're going to try to tackle the dome, which is a very characteristic feature of the Basilica. You know, it's a copper dome in its day. It was the second largest dome in the United States, second only to the Capitol building in Washington. So it's a very important feature of, of our building. And uh, we're going to need to replace the copper, and uh, that is a very daunting task. So we have a team of people working on that and uh, planning the mobilization of that project, which will last uh, two-plus years to complete. Wonderful. Uh, what, a what a huge effort. And, and again, I've been here. I've been there. I've filmed there. And it is truly one of the most beautiful shrines and basilicas in the entire United States. So any work that's being done uh, to keep that going is, of course, a worthy, worthy cause. And we've ta been talking today with Father David Lapuma and also uh, David Kirsten, the Chief Executive Officer of OLV Charities. And uh, I think worth mentioning as well is that the legacy of uh, Father Baker continues on in a big way through the, the many, many uh, initiatives of Our Lady of Victories, OLV Charities, um, that goes on even to this day. And I think one of the new and exciting things that uh, I've been made aware of is that there's a new Catholic parenting initiative. Um, I, there was some $1.25 million grant that was received from the Lilly Endowment, um, and that's uh, leading towards this uh, Catholic parenting initiative. Can either of you uh, talk a little bit about what is being planned for. Uh, what what is this all about uh, with this with this nice grant that's uh, been received? Well, yeah, this this was really uh, an exciting opportunity that uh, that we uh, were made aware of. Um, for those that uh, in your audience that might not be familiar, the Lilly Endowment is is a very significant funding entity in the United States, and they're very generous uh, and supportive when it comes to religious uh, efforts. Uh, now, this is all across the board, uh, a variety of Christian denominations. So in the past year, they launched uh, a request for proposal grant program called the Christian Parenting Initiative uh, for all denominations. Um, and uh, each, each entity across the United States, about 103 of them were awarded this grant of $1.25 million. Um, so it's literally a uh, 100 plus million you know, a $150 million program. 
Uh, we were one of six organizations in New York State, the only Catholic entity to do that. And we felt that this was something that was important for us to consider and pursue, taking a cue from our founder, Father Baker, who was always kind of looking within the community to say, how can I respond to the needs that uh, exist around us? And in this particular grant initiative, uh, is built on a lot of research and data. Uh, we know that, uh, unfortunately, across the United States, we're becoming um, a less religious nation, and there is a significant amount of de-churching that is happening generationally, and it's particularly acute with uh, certain generations, like uh, the Gen Z folks. And the data and the studies are, are showing that, you know, one of the things that we, we need to kind of step back and, and reinforce is the, the nexus between the role of parents and their children and their faith communities in, in successfully handing on the faith. This whole grant program is really built on that. And so uh, the, the Lilly Endowment uh, awarded our proposal. And so what we're gonna do is over the next five years is develop a program uh, engage uh, about 35 parishes here in the Diocese of Buffalo um, intently and, and working with uh, parents and the pastoral teams and the children to develop something that is responsive and recognizes this core um, dynamic where we are supporting and, and in um, strengthening and encouraging parents and equipping them with the tools that they need to, to be very confident in their role as the central teachers for their children. And so that's really what this whole program is built on. We're hoping that as it advances over the next five years, we'll, we'll be able to establish something that will take root and begin to serve the wider uh, diocesan community here in Western New York. Wonderful. Well, uh, for people who want to find out more about the Catholic Parenting Initiative or any of the work that's being done uh, with OLV Charities or at the Basilica, what are, what are the best uh, websites or other places uh, for people to connect to? Well, certainly go to our website where we have uh, identified this particular program. That's certainly uh, a source that you can uh, visit, olvcharities.org. Um, or uh, you can probably visit the Lilly Endowment. Uh, they're in Indiana, and this would probably explain the broader grant initiative um, that is taking place all across the country. Wonderful. Well, we're so grateful to you, David Kirsten, and also uh, Father David LaPuma uh, from Our Lady of Victory National Shrine and Basilica and OLV Charities. Thank you so much for joining us on today's program and uh, for talking to us about the incredible life and impact of Venerable Nelson Baker. We're always praying for his canonization cause, and we're praying for your great work uh, going forward with OLV Charities and the Shrine itself. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you, Michael. And you're always welcome here at OLV. Thank you, Michael. God bless. And that was Father David LaPuma uh, talking to us. He's the uh, rector of the Our Lady of Victory National Shrine and Basilica. And David Kirsten, the chief executive officer uh, from OLV Charities. Uh, great guys, both of them. I've met them both. And uh, they were instrumental in the production of that uh, episode of They Might Be Saints, which you can check out at EWTN Religious Catalog uh, to find out more about the life of Venerable Nelson Baker. And that's all the time we have for today's show. If you missed any of this episode or want to catch up on past episodes, you can go to EWTN.com radio. Check out the audio archives or download the free EWTN app. I'd like to thank our guest today, Catherine O'Dell, author of Those Who Saw Mary. And uh, Monsignor David LaPuma and David Kirsten talking to us about Venerable Nelson Baker. Check out my show, Explore with the Miracle Hunter, the Trey Fontana episode, where I'll be investigating a miraculous encounter at the site where St. Paul was martyred, the Virgin of Revelation's appearance to Bruno Cornacciola, a rabid anti-Catholic, changed both the man and the church itself. And I'd like to thank you for joining me today on Miracle Hunter, where from claims of healings and visions to the world's most inexplicable events, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the truth is always worth the hunt. Talk to you next week. <laughs>